Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship together as a church family. What a grace, Lord, that we get to, to do life together. We thank you, Lord, that as we enter a new year and as we consider how we are going to, to live and to act and to witness, Lord, we thank you for the gospel that not, not only saves us but um, transforms us. And when so, Lord, we pray that we would be rooted in that gospel, that we might share the love of that gospel. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. It is good to be here, good to worship with you. Before we jump into this message, I, I wanted to take a moment and thank you on behalf of the staff and elders for your generous Christmas gift to us. Um, I think for us, the fact that you would sacrifice from what you have to bless us means so much. <clears throat> First, it means a lot because on a practical level, it is really uh, very helpful. Uh, people on our staff used it for everything from, from uh, dentist appointments, baby food, schooling, car seats, high chairs, a vacuum, uh, camera, Christmas gifts, uh, amongst other things. But I feel it's safe to say that for all of us, that beyond what it means materially, it, it means so much because we know it's a demonstration of your love. Uh, I know for many on the staff, they've sacrificed a lot to serve this church and to serve their Savior. And Though they do joyfully, your grace and your support and, your, and the fact that you're thinking of us is really an undeserved grace. And so again, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Uh, it's one of the reasons that serving this church is uh, such an absolute blessing. With that, uh, if you'll turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jason preached on December 31st, and he said, we saved the best for last. And I think that means I'm here to set the bar low for the rest of the year. So don't get excited. It's like a purposefully mediocre message, right? But we're going to build up until Jason preaches at the end of the year again. So excited for that. But as we continue into this new year, we wanted to consider what it means to be a cruciformed church. Because as we continue our study in Galatians, we thought it would be good, a good time to consider how the realities of the gospel that Paul fights so strongly for in Galatians impact and change our lives, not just as individuals, but really as a church family. In fact, the reason that we chose to preach through Galatians was because of its emphasis on the gospel and how the gospel plays itself out in our lives. But understand, we began looking at and considering Galatians during the spring of last year with this year in mind because we realized that with all that is going on in our world and in our country, including a coming election, it has the potential to be a pretty volatile year. And so we felt like that the only thing that would really allow us to stay the course with conviction and courage and yet with humility, hope, and love was the gospel. And actually, more personally, I was thinking about this year, 2024, way back in 2020 and 2021, because as I'm sure you remember, it was a very difficult time for our country and a very difficult time for churches. I, I told the staff, like, I'm, I'm really not looking for 2024. I'm supposed to take a sabbatical this year. I thought, maybe I'll just take 2024 off, right? And then I'll see you in 2025. But in one sense, it was the perfect storm when you include not just the election and the general direction of our culture, but throw in a worldwide pandemic and the tragedy of George Floyd. And it really had the makings of a very volatile time in our history. And though there were many examples of the church and Christians living out their faith and courage and hope and love, there were also two fairly other common responses. One was capitulation and compromise. We saw it was too easy for professing Christians and churches to embrace the values of the culture. The other response was fear and anger, often the anger being a result of the fear. 
we, we not only saw professing Christians and churches responding with vitriol, even in the name of Christ, to this world that needs Christ, but for me what was even more sad was to see Christians turning on one another, whether online or in person or, or whatever. And I'm guessing some of you experienced this, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if you have some relationships that haven't been the same since. And even for Lighthouse, and I would say this as a church that survived fairly well, some churches didn't make it or never, um, have never even re really recovered. Even for us, it was a challenging time. But for me, what, has ha what was happening is so, uh, in so many demonstrated that so many had lost their bearings. Right? They weren't exactly sure what to believe or who to listen to or how to respond. Uh, there was fear and anger, there was frustration and worry, there was discouragement and even hopelessness. And so though the Bible offers this really robust theology of living in a culture opposed to Christ, so much of that was lost amidst the fears that people struggled with. And all this reminds us of how we need the gospel that defines us and that grounds us. Like I said earlier, it's the gospel that allows us to stay the course with conviction and courage, and yet with humility and with hope and with love. And so that's why we're studying Galatians a letter that focuses on the gospel that frees us. But though we began our study this last fall, now as we enter 2024, we really wanted to highlight why the gospel must be central to who we are and to what we do, especially amidst what could be a potentially challenging year. And understand this, like this message isn't simply to tell you like, be a nice person, you know, stop giving others a hard time. It's really because our church has such a powerful opportunity to be a light. Right, to make Christ known to a world opposed to Christ and yet so desperately in need of Christ. I mean, when we look around us and we see the cultural slide towards depravity, when we see how sin is not just allowed but celebrated, when we look at all the conflict and the racial unrest and the vitriol online, when our news feeds are filled with stories of murder and abuse and war, and when we see how nothing our culture is doing to fix it all is working, how our culture is more divided, more depressed, more angry, more suicidal, more hurting, more hateful than ever before. It should simply be this vivid, constant, real-time reminder of how much the world needs Jesus and how we, Lighthouse, have the opportunity to make him known. Like we said, to a world so desperately in need of, of a savior, we get to say that savior is Christ, the only hope for the sin and suffering around us and the sin and suffering within us. But to be a light to the gospel, we need to hold fast to the gospel. We need to stand firm in the gospel. Because the gospel is what tells us that our savior is greater than our fears. And so it's the gospel that allows us to live holy lives, but with great hope. It's the gospel that allows us to, to have courage, but to do so with kindness. And so the theme that we're gonna take a closer look at this morning is what it means to be a cruciform church. Something that is, uh, is a cruciform is shaped like a cross. Cruciform isn't technically a word, but we're defining it uh, a cruciform church like Paul describes believers in Galatians as a people who are shaped by the message of the cross so that they can, sit, can live out the love of the cross. And that kind of becomes our key idea. And that's what we hope for this year, that the cruciform church is shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross. And so let's break that down into two ideas. The cruciform church is shaped by the message of the cross. We're shaped by those things around us. I think about technology. I'm not great with technology to the surprise of no one. My kids know it. They give me a hard time for it. Recently, my wife and I were out. And so I took a 0.5 
and I sent it to our kids. If you don't know what a point five is, that's because you're old like me. And I'm not really sure what it is, but I know it involves like having a really long arm and then like background or something. But when they saw it, they knew that it took like 10 shots to get that, right? And it's true because instead of doing 0.5, my habit is to accidentally do five times magnification, which means I just take a picture of my eye or something, right? And then I send it to them. <clears throat> but as little as I know about technology, I do know this, that it has the potential to shape us. And there's so much in our culture that has that potential. So the question is, what is shaping us? I mean, with the new year, you may have thought about what you hope for, what you're committed to, what you want to reform or improve, and it's because we realize that our lives are not uh, stagnant, right? For better or worse, we're constantly changing. And because of that, we're, we often consider those things that shape us. It might be very literal, like knowing that eating too much fast food is uh, changing us into a shape that we wouldn't prefer, so we, we eat healthier, or it might be what we read or watch on TV, and so we commit to, to reading through the Bible for the year or not watching or taking in so much media. We might try to learn a new skill. We might try to, to love our family better. Again, the idea being that we want to change for the better. We want to improve. And, and all this is, is generally fine, but as believers, we must consider what, what is shaping our faith. Like what is influencing what we believe and how we live? And to our point this morning, we must consider if we're cruciformed, right? If we're being shaped by the message of the cross. And understand this is why we chose to, to study Galatians, right? Because at the heart of Paul's message in this letter is the gospel. His argument being that the gospel plus nothing else is what saves us and what transforms us. And importantly, his point is that it is the foundation of not just eternal life, but really everyday life. In fact, some of the specific examples that Paul uses have to do with the gospel's bearing on how we live. And if you've been with us in our study, you know that the reason Paul preaches the gospel kind of so boldly and clearly and passionately in this letter is because he's addressing these detractors, these false teachers within the Galatian churches who were arguing that there were certain aspects of the Old Testament law that were vital to being a faithful Christian. So kind of like you need Jesus, but you need to do certain things as well. And so though they may not set it in so many words, uh, it was the belief that the gospel wasn't enough. Like you kind of need the gospel plus the Old Testament law. And yet understand before we, we like jump, jump to judgment that this was a very convincing argument. I, I think at our current point in history, it might be easy to dismiss a group that says something like, well, circumcision is really important to being a Christian. But if you really only had the Old Testament to work with, you would likely conclude that circumcision was very important to followers of God. And I mean, just read the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then ask yourself, how important is circumcision? But what made it so convincing is also what made it so dangerous. Right? These teachers weren't saying, hey, let's rebel against God. Let's ignore God. Let's not follow God. They were saying, we need to obey God. We need to be a people of scripture. We need to hold tightly to the word of God and do exactly what it says. And so under the guise of, of a faithfulness and being a people of the word, the Galatians were being led astray by a different gospel. Now as an aside, you can kind of see this happening right now on various sides of the cultural debate. Ideas that sound Christian, but upon closer examination aren't really Christian at all. For example, you might hear something like, well, love is love, or, or love means acceptance, right? And, and the, the idea being we should embrace certain worldly ideologies. And, and in part, it sounds so good, because as Christians, we are supposed to love. But as we'll discuss in the second point, it's really a counterfeit love that actually ends up being unloving. Or from a completely different faction, you might hear something like, well, it's, this is all about righteous anger. It's 
It's justified moral outrage, right? And kind of allows for their, their, their responses to the culture. And again, it sounds good because the Bible does mention something about righteous anger, but in both cases, they're missing a thoroughly biblical, Christ-centered approach to engaging our culture and really living faithful for Christ. But to Paul's point, it's so dangerous because it sounds so very close to Christianity, so very close to faithfulness, and yet it isn't what God demands or what he desires. And this is why Paul responds the way that he does in this letter. Like there's such passion because he's worried that the Galatians are moving away from the one true gospel. And listen to how he starts the letter in chapter one, verses six and seven. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then his response to that, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And understand his point isn't just that the false teachers were wrong, but that they were dangerous. This false gospel was dangerous. And in chapter two, verses four and five, he says, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so Paul's argument was that this isn't like this minor theological quibble. But this is about what would own their hearts, what they would trust in and live for. And the wrong gospel was an enslaving gospel. It's, it's like walking into a jail cell of your own accord and then closing the door. Now, this may all sound <clears throat> pretty removed from our world, but it does first challenge us <clears throat> to ask the question if we're adding to the gospel. Like, are we making the law what isn't meant to be the law? I think in a year of politics, we could talk about uh, political parties and voting, people you know, saying basically, hey, if you're really Christian, you're gonna vote in this way. And if that sounds too far-fetched, I'm guessing many of you know people who, who struggle to believe that a Christian could, could ever vote in, in a particular way, or maybe even know Christians who don't wanna worship with someone from an opposing political party. And understand, as we'll, as we'll discuss, it's very important to have a Christian worldview and to live out our faith, including in things like voting. But this doesn't mean we get to make the law what wasn't meant to be the law. And it doesn't mean we get to ignore the purpose of the law, which, as we'll discuss, is actually to love others well. But getting back to the point, Paul wants the Galatians and us to be saved by the message of the gospel and to be shaped by the message of the gospel. Like I keep saying, Paul's discussion about the gospel wasn't just about getting into heaven. He wasn't writing this for unbelievers and trying to explain to them salvation by grace through faith alone. He was writing to Christians, uh, knowing that their understanding of the gospel would determine who they really were. And the point being, as Christians, we are meant to be shaped by the realities of the gospel. I love how Paul describes it in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. So he's talking about the gospel. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're gonna spend a couple of weeks uh, on this around Easter time, but the passage is so significant to who we are as Christians because you see Paul's argument. He says we live every moment out of the gospel, out of our faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. It's the cross that shapes us. 
I mean, listen to it again. He doesn't say, I live with strong moral convictions. I live and let people do what makes them happy. I live by faith in the government. I live out of my own sense of personhood. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, in other words, this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be faithful to Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The idea of faith in Christ who loves us and gave himself for us, that's the gospel. And he's saying, this is how I live. And as Paul's saying, he lives out of the reality of the gospel. He's shaped by his faith in who Christ is and what he's done for him on the cross which means I live, I, I discern truth and I engage in social media and I vote and I navigate my college campus and I understand sexuality and I shepherd my kids and I respond to my enemies by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, the cruciform church must be shaped by the gospel. We must live by faith that Christ loves us and gave himself for us. So here's something we must ask ourselves, what are we being shaped by? Like, of course, we would love to say, well, it's the gospel, it's, it's Christ, it's the Bible. But what is it really? Now, on one hand, I think as Christians, we are rightly concerned about the power of the culture to shape us and to shape our children. I'm guessing some of you feel that. Right? You walk onto campus every day and you feel that pressure to, to conform, to fit in. You see what the culture believes and how it preaches it so boldly. You feel society demanding, demanding that you believe what it believes. You fear for your children and what they're being taught by the world. And so for us to be a cruciform church, we have to make sure that we're, we're always being shaped by the gospel, by the truths of Christ as revealed in the word of God. Like we, we must not compromise. I think for, as elders and pastors, we're continuing to consider what this looks like uh, because uh, while scripture stays the same, you know, the, the culture is ever changing. And so we're, we're thinking through what does it mean for us to guard the church, for us to be a people who are shaped by the gospel. Um, so we are going to do a couple things in this, this year. And one is that while our statement of faith articulates well our core beliefs, like about scripture and our triune God and, and the gospel, we realize that we need to continue to, to make clear what we believe on some secondary and yet important issues. And so our hope is that by the fall, we can kind of bolster our statement of faith in some areas, as well as release position papers that clearly define what we believe as a church on some of these pressing issues. Second, we're also coming up with a document that those who teach and shepherd others need to adhere to. So it's not gonna affect membership, but if for instance, you're teaching or shepherding our youth, uh, we wanna make sure that everyone is holding to a biblical worldview. So for example, a biblical worldview of sexuality and gender and things like that. Now understand, you don't actually have to agree with everything we believe to attend this church. You don't have to vote a certain way. You don't have to agree on all the finer points of theology. You don't need to have this robust theology or understanding of culture and politics. Our great passion is for you to know Christ, to be saved by the gospel and then to be shaped by that gospel. In fact, if you're newer, uh, maybe you're, you aren't a Christian, maybe you're investigating the claims of Christ, just know that we are so happy that you're here. And I, I really don't care much about what you believe about politics or their culture or anything like that, because more than anything, I want you to know our Savior. I want you to know how amazing and loving and beautiful and kind Jesus is, because he's the one that you need. He's not only the answer to the sinfulness in us, but he's the answer to the sin and suffering around us. And when you trust in him, he will make sense of your world. And so please understand that while as Christians, we have our convictions about the culture and about the world, being a Christian doesn't actually begin with those convictions. 
that begins with Christ. And so we hope you'll continue to come and you'll continue to hear more about Jesus and we hope uh, and the hope that he offers you. Back to our point, at a, kind of at a church level, we need to guard against anything in the culture that might shape us in a way that is not rooted in the truths of scripture and the gospel of Christ. And yet understand that this isn't just as a church, but more personally, each of us needs to be on guard against the influences of our culture. We need to think about what is shaping us. Now, I think in part, this starts with having a robust biblical and gospel-centered worldview. And understand, I I didn't say like have strong opinions on politics and culture, in part because that's really a much smaller part of what it means to be a faithful Christian with a biblical worldview. And it doesn't mean that it's unimportant, it's just not the most important. But that being said, we do need to know what the Bible says about our world. For, For those of you in school, middle school, high school, college, Um, For those of you who are young adults, praxis, navigating uh, in the work world, maybe for the first time, I'm guessing for many of you, you're constantly hearing the preaching of our culture. And at some point, it may start to sound pretty convincing. I mean, you might think like, does it really matter if it doesn't hurt anyone else, what someone does? Uh, Or shouldn't we try to be loving and accepting? Or shouldn't we be against hate? Should we be against bigotry? And obviously, there's a great measure of truth to all of these, but if it's not undergirded by a Christian worldview, it becomes twisted into something it was not meant to be. It's kind of like uh, the false teachers in the, the churches in Galatia, you know, wanting to be about Scripture, wanting to be about obeying God, and it actually tearing at the gospel, the very heart of Christianity. If we don't understand what the Bible really says and cling to it, we will find ourselves living as Christians in name only, while we live according to the beliefs and values of a godless culture. Now, to help with this, we wanted to continue to offer opportunities to grow in understanding our culture from the perspective of our faith. And so we're going to try to at least provide some opportunities this coming year. For one, we will be hosting our Exiles Conference for Youth again this year. The focus is on uh, what it means that we're, we're visitors in this world. We're sojourners. This isn't our home. So how do we navigate this world? And so we need to understand what it means to, again, live for Christ in a world opposed to Christ, yet who desperately needs Christ. And so though it'll be open to anyone in the church, the focus will be on helping our young people navigate, though we'll probably have different tracks for different seasons of life. Beyond that, we're hoping to host a mini conference, helping us to think through issues of gender and sexuality. And not only because we wanna know what the Bible teaches to grow on our conviction, but also so that we can grow in better knowing how to love others. Like what does it mean for for us as a church to be someone who, who knows what we believe and loves well because of it? We'll like also have a, a summer nightlight series where we focus on some of the worldview, worldview topics that are pressing. Um, and along with some of those things, some of our fellowship groups will be, be going through various things as well. For example, I think Praxis is gonna be planning on doing a, a worldview series during the summer also. Now, some of these are still being worked on. We might add other things, but Lord willing, those are some of the things that we will do to kind of ensure that you have opportunities to be shaped by the truths of the gospel. Now, hopefully all this will be helpful. But I think as we think about what is shaping us, we need to consider not just the sinful bent of our culture, but even the the pseudo-Christian influences that are shaping our heart in ways that aren't gospel-centered. Does it make sense? In other words, while we should rightly be concerned about the world's influences, we should be just as on guard against other influences that may be embraced by a, quote, conservative faction, but again, are more pseudo-Christian than actually Christian. Maybe the most obvious example is people justifying sin under the guise of righteous anger or justified moral outrage, right? Because the Bible is so clear, no matter how right we are about an issue, it doesn't allow for sin. 
As one of our pastors put it, the Bible does not allow for unrighteous responses to very real wrongs. It doesn't allow for a lack of love, sinful anger, faithless fear, unkind words, harsh online posts. In fact, if you want to know if someone really understands and has a biblical worldview, just look at how they're responding to what's going on. Not just the content of their words, but is it leading to, to love, to the fruit of the Spirit? Another example is those who are pitting Christians versus the culture or Christians against the culture. When biblically, it's meant to be Christians trying to win the people of our culture for Christ. Right? We, I don't know why we're ever surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. But in reality, we should just let the fallenness of our culture break our hearts as it reveals how much people need Jesus. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Like we're here to be a light to an unsaved world. So again, we, we have to be on guard with what shapes us, and yet we want to make Christ known. So we must be shaped by the cross, not by the world's vision, the world's truths, or the world's version of conservative culture. So maybe that leads to the practical question. Well, then how are we shaped? What forms us? What influences our hearts? And at least in part, it's by what we take in, what we think about, what we meditate on. As Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Why? Because as it goes on to say, when, when we do, when we set our mind on things above, we put to death what is earthly in us. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Then verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. But then do you see what happens when we meditate on the wrong things? When we set our mind on things below we actually give life to things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. And don't we see that right now even amongst professing Christians? Right? Some have set their mind on things on earth. So they've listened to the culture's lies enough, they've watched enough media, they sat passively as the world preaches a false gospel, and at some point what used to be wrong now seems to be right, and unsurprisingly it gives life to things like sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires. On the other hand, many are setting their minds on the things of earth because they're reading those inflammatory articles someone passes along to them about how godless our culture is. They're doing their quiet times in social media, reading post after post, encouraging moral outrage. They're having these conversations with others that fuels their fears. And unsurprisingly, it gives life to anger and slander and wrath. We have to be aware of chases. We need to set our mind on things above. It's the idea of being formed by the message of the gospel. So two simple practical encouragements. One is, the first is just to guard your hearts. You need to ask yourself, what is shaping you? On one hand, guard against the secular culture. Right? We must not let the, the greatest influence in our life be the world because of what we watch and read. But I would also, say also guard against the pseudo-Christian culture. Again, I would be discerning with what you read and what you pass on for others to read. Because our souls are at stake, so we, we can't endanger ourselves by allowing the world in any form to shape our hearts. I, I think one thing to really consider is your internet and social media intake. I know for some of you, like telling you like maybe social media isn't good for you, is like telling you like, ah, maybe you don't need to eat this week, right? It's like, I don't know if I could do that. 
But trust me when I say it, would, it might do your heart a world of good. And it's just so simple, right? You just get off of it. I remember when some of the racial unrest was happening a couple of years ago and people were struggling with social media and like some, you know, saying, well, silence is violence and then people not sure how to respond and, and what to do. People even being disappointed in the church because we weren't doing more. I think the pretty simple answer is you just, you don't have to be on social media. I mean, it's rarely the platform to clearly articulate your beliefs. And so often the best thing to do is simply just not be on it. Right, and again, I always clarify that social media is not wrong in and of itself. The church, I think, has an Instagram account where we show beautiful pictures and say, come to church. You know, I think that's great. But not being innately wrong doesn't mean it's right for you. And, and parents, can I really encourage you to consider what your kids take in, right? There is no rule that says your kids need to be on social media, and there is a great danger in letting them have the world constantly preach at them through a device that they often have with them 24-7. Okay, that's enough of my old person get off my lawn rant. But just ask at least, okay, what are the negative influences in my life, in my family's life, and how can I guard against them? And the second practical encouragement is just to be shaped by the gospel. And so we, we guard against the negative influences, but we need to conversely make sure that we're being shaped by the truths of the gospel. And understand, this is why we're preaching through Galatians because it allows us each week to consider the gospel and how we must not only live out that gospel, but to, li to live out, uh, I'm sorry, to live out of that gospel, but to live out that gospel. In fact, sometime in the summer, when we hit the middle of Galatians chapter five, we're gonna spend two or three months looking at the fruit of the spirit, you know, so one week for each. And you may be thinking like, do we need like two or three months to look at two verses? But we do, right? We, we need to be shaped by the truth of scripture more than anything else. And so let's go there and let's like eat fruit of the Spirit and what it means to our lives. Beyond that, what will this look like in your life? Some ideas. Begin to pray about how God can use you to reach the culture. Yeah, so pray to stand firm. Pray to know what you believe, but pray for, for God to use you to reach the culture. I mean, imagine every day you wake up and you pray, Lord, help me to reach this culture for you. Wouldn't it get you to start to, to see the culture differently? Also, and you're seeing the culture because your heart is being shaped by the gospel and this passion, this desire to see people saved. And there's a few kids in the church that we pray for that our family's like prayer warriors for. And uh, with the older two in particular, freshman in college, a junior in high school, my most consistent prayer that I have prayed hundreds of times over the last years is that they would be a light where they are. Like, because I, I think like that's, I mean, that's what God wants for them not just to survive, not just to stand firm, but to be a light to those who don't know him. And that needs to be what each of us is praying for ourselves. Like, Lord, help me to be a light. Let me go onto this campus and be a light for Christ. Another idea, study the word and let it define what you believe. So don't start with politics and then try to figure out how the Bible justifies what you wanna believe. Just study the word. Because if you do so faithfully and humbly, you're gonna live rightly. You will live with courage but you also, you also live with, with humility. You'll live with conviction, but you also have hope and you'll have love. Along with this, study the word to deepen your worldview, not, not to fight better, but really to love better, to witness better, to make Christ known. Along with this, study the word, listen to sermons maybe more than you listen to inflammatory podcasts. More than one of you have expressed how, you know, just, you went through a season of just listening to podcasts at the podcast that just made your heart angry. I mean, you know what it's doing to your faith. And so instead, listen to sermons or listen to podcasts that actually encourage you in your faith. 
things that will build your, your faith as it encourages you to love and worship our Savior. There's another one, minister the gospel to others. In other words, use the word to point people to Christ in their everyday struggles. And as you're ministering the gospel, let that gospel transform you. So for instance, relationally, be less concerned about people's political beliefs and more concerned with those issues that are affecting their everyday life. And I believe there is a time to address what people believe about the culture. And hopefully there are people that you have enough of a relational equity with that you can do those things and you can talk those things out again so that you can love better. But practically speaking, just know that as an elder and a counselor in this church, in this church um, that we have many more, much more prominent issues. So for example, no one comes to our counseling ministry because they're not sure who to vote for. Right? But we have so many who are struggling in their marriages. We have parents who are hurting. We have people who are mired in sin. We have people who are suffering in horrendous ways. And can I challenge you to invest in, in those people's lives, in those areas that they're hurting? Because if you were to come to me and say, well, well, Pastor Kim, I was thinking of really two ideas, either becoming really well-read on politics so that I can, I can convince people what to believe and how to vote, or I just want to continue to know what the word says about marriage so I can walk with husbands and wives. What do you think I should do? Like, it wouldn't even take me a millisecond to answer that. I'd be, please, study the word and walk with those couples. And I, and I say this not as someone who, like, doesn't care about politics. I'm, you know, like, let's all just forget it. Like, I read, I, you know, I've studied the word in particular so much when it comes to politics and voting. A lot of you have heard me preach sermon after sermon on these things. Um, and yeah, I'm telling you, if you know the people of our church, politics and culture most often, not always, but most often, isn't the greatest point of sin and suffering. And so just believe that if you can minister to them, like you're constantly bringing the gospel to bear on their lives, that it's going to shape your heart as well. And I think this is something we can do together. So what will you be shaped by? Recently, one of our pastors listened to a viral message really kind of denouncing the culture and he said, it was like, it was good. It was like so convincing. Like you're just up in arms. And, uh, but then he slowed down and he really thought about it. And he said, do you know what was missing from the message after I really thought about it? It was Christ. Like there's no hope in him, right? The fact of making him known was pretty absent. In Lighthouse, this can't be us. The message of the cross has to be everything to us. Let's be shaped by it and then let's show the love of it. And that leads to our second idea. Right, this cruciform church shows the love of the cross. So we're shaped by the message of the cross to show the love of the cross. If we're going to be a light to the world, we need love. I was reading an article on a Christian satire website. So if you're wondering where I am reading. Um, and the title was this. It was Unbeliever Converted to Christianity After Seeing believe Christians Bicker with Each Other Online. And the article begins like this. The angels of heaven rejoiced today as the addition of another member of God's kingdom as a local unbeliever converted to Christianity after seeing Christians bicker with each other online. The man who had spent his entire life attempting to resist the call of the Holy Spirit finally succumbed to the all-powerful drawing of God when he witnessed two professing believers viciously attacking each other on social media. This is what I want my life to be like, said Ethan Gregory after following the extended argument online. The way they were insulting each other, the anger I could sense radiating from their comments, it's really a compelling case to be a Christian. I can't run away from God. I want to be just like these guys. Okay, now again, that was satire, right? But it makes the point, doesn't it? Like, will we show love? Like, what will we be known for? Now, we don't have as much time to spend here, but 
We need to be shaped by the gospel, but to what purpose? Is it to vote better? Is it to fight better, defend better? Actually, it's all those. But the Bible is very explicit, uh, explicit that our, our, our highest calling is that we would love better. Now, to see this first, understand the flow of Galatians. As a church, we tend to study a few verses at a time. We can dig in. But sometimes we kind of forget the big picture of what's going on, and we, we don't see the, the, the author's larger intent. So again, remember, the bigger picture is the freedom of the gospel, how we're not subject to the Old Testament law. The first two chapters of Galatians, he kind of explains this through his own testimony. He says, like, I've been given this gospel from Jesus himself. Uh, chapters three and four, he offers a theological argument as to why the, the sufficiency of the gospel. But in chapters five and six, he pivots and he points out how the realities of the freedom of the gospel don't mean the freedom to do whatever we want, but the gospel leads to loving well. So get that, in this, this, this letter written to just fight for the gospel, he makes sure that he spends a second third of it telling us, by the way, make sure that you're loving well. Listen to Galatians 5.14, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So freedom from the law doesn't mean, it doesn't matter how we live, but when we are shaped by the gospel, we will show the love of the gospel. And from there, he talks about the outworking of that love. Like on one hand, it's simple. He says, avoid the works of the flesh. Right, Galatians 5, 19 and 21, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then conversely, he, we were, we're to strive to live in step with the Spirit, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So here it is. Like, this is the outworking of Christ. This is what happens when we are people shaped by the cross, that we're, we're fighting sin, and conversely, we're seeking to love. And I think this is where many of us have erred. I mean, holding on to the wrong goals, the wrong purposes, because like our goal isn't, for instance, to, be, to fit in, to be accepted by the culture. Being approved of by the culture to live a more comfortable life is unheard of in scripture. The goal isn't to have debate online and try to demean those who disagree. The goal isn't to go about life unnoticed, like just to hide and be a covert Christian. We are meant to love well. We are meant to be humble and kind. We are meant to make Christ known as the only way for salvation. So as you think about your interaction with the culture and with those in the church, just ask yourself, are you loving well? Like when you're having that conversation, is it done in love? Like it's like, I'm gonna have this because I love them so much. As you think about your interactions with uh, people online, with people in your own family, with people in the church, is it marked by love? Now importantly, kind of as a side note, but when we, when we say love well, we mean the love that is described in scripture. Because the world has its own counterfeit version of love, but it's not the same thing. Because you know, again, you'll hear things like the love is love or love is acceptance. But these are dangerous ideas of love that just, just about everyone realizes doesn't really make sense when it plays itself out. Like if your kid loves to play in the middle of the street, you don't say, well, I'm gonna accept him because that's love. You, you get him out of the street, even if he's throwing a temper tantrum at the time. True love seeks people's highest good, even if they don't want it, even if it's sacrificial on your part. It's not, the acceptance, it's, not a, it's not about acceptance as much as the pursuit of what's best for others. And we see this love in the Bible, right? That's how we've done find it here at Lighthouse, based on the second greatest commandment. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person that seeks another's highest good, even at the cost to self. So what does that look like? What, what does it mean practically? 
Well, a love that seeks the other's highest good, even at the cost of self, is marked by at least a few things. One, it's marked by an unwillingness to justify a lack of love. Earlier, I read Galatians 5 and the works of the flesh, right? You know, enmity and strife and jealousy and anger. And Paul's saying those are sinful, those are wrong, those are what the unsaved do. Meaning that we can never allow for those things. Right? Jesus says, love your enemies, and then he literally prayed for those who are crucifying him. And we need to follow in his footsteps, always loving, never sinning. A love that seeks others' highest good, even at the cost of self, is marked by, by courage and conviction. Like willing to do the hard things. Pastor Gavin is preaching at another church this morning, so I thought about putting his email at the bottom of the notes. Like if you have, hey, if you have problems with the sermon, I would just email that person, right? And you can, but that would not be courageous. So um, we need to be a courageous people. And if we're going to love well, it takes courage, it takes conviction. For example, it's not loving to, to just let people do what they want to do, right? It's, it's loving to hold to, a, it's actually loving to hold to a biblical ethic. So for example, simply accept, being accepting of someone's sexual orientation, even if it conflicts with scripture, isn't loving. And people think it is because, well, like you're accepting them and you're letting them do what they want to do. But it's not loving because their sin, like all of our sin, is meant to show us our need for a savior. And so when you're saying that sin is no longer a sin, we're also saying you, don't know, you no longer need a savior. Right? We came to Christ because we realized that we're sinners. And the world's brokenness, and each of us is included in this, is meant to show how desperately we need the gospel. And so just one example, but that kind of love will take courage, right? To stand firm, to be humble, to suffer abuse, to share about Christ, to be canceled in some form. But this is love. A love that seeks the other's highest good, even at the cost of self, is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. As you slow down and think about your life, is it about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Does that mark your love? For instance, for someone who constantly wants to, um, uh, for instance, if you're someone who you kind of, you know, you want to talk about righteous anger, and, and that's great, you know, because the Bible does talk about that. But the question then I would at least follow that up with is, well, how does that righteous anger lead you to love? Because right? it has to. It has to lead to righteous actions. It doesn't lead to sinful actions. And the end of all that we do is love. So the question will always be like, how does that righteous anger, if that's what it is, lead you to love? Or for example, love is patient. Right? A group of us got together at the end of last year to discuss this year, and it was a group from kind of a wider political spectrum. And, and I appreciated one person's comments, the lighthouse is a place where people have the space to learn and to grow and to figure things out. Are you patient in that way? I mean, think about it. It shouldn't be surprising if someone comes to our church, maybe they're not a Christian and they get saved or they're a new Christian or maybe they're from a different theological stream. It's not surprising they don't believe exactly what we believe, but do we give them the space to process and to grow? Like, do we love just walking with people and just thinking through scripture together and helping them to come to a better place of worship and love? And again, we're going to spend two or three months just looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and what a blessing that should be. Because when the year is over and the dust is settled, it would be such a grace if people looked at Lighthouse and they saw a cruciform church because we were loving and we were joyful and we were at peace and we were patient and we were kind and we were good and we were faithful and we were gentle and we were self-controlled. I mean, that means we're the cruciform church. 
A love that seeks others' highest good, even at the cost of self, is marked by actual acts of service. But I mean, we need to actually do the things that we believe in. And I'm, I'm like, voting's a good example. I'm not down on voting, and I, I vote. You've heard me preach, some of you have heard me preach multiple messages, and I think it's important. But I can also think it at times is a very low bar when it comes to our involvement in the culture. I think what is more important is that our love actually does something. Does that make sense? So for example, the Bible is clearly pro-life. As Christians, we should see abortion as the murder of humans made in the very image of God. But that being said, if you count yourself as pro-life because once every four years you vote a certain way, I would really ask if, if what pro-life means to you at all. I mean, because for some of yeah, political parties and voting, that's everything. And yet realize that, first of all, like our vote in this state, especially at the presidential level, doesn't really affect the outcome, right? I think last time there was like 5 million votes difference between the two candidates. And again, I'm not saying voting matters. I, I think it's an important way we engage our culture and we live out our faith. But at least the, the question that you should ask yourself practically is, what did that vote do for the unborn? Like, what did it really do for the unborn? If you're going to be pro-life, then we need to be active in this. <clears throat> what could you do? I think one of the most powerful things we can do as a church is to continue to push into fostering and adopting. It's a way to say that these sometimes unwanted babies will have a home and someone who will value them and love them. I mean, that's how we could be pro-life. Or could you support ministries that's, that are seeking to minister to women considering abortion? Or we have people coming here who have had an abortion. And how can we love them and serve them? How can we talk with them about the, grace, great, the great grace and love of our Savior? How can we make sure <clears throat> that they never feel like a second-class citizen, but they're just they're sinners among other sinners who have experienced the immense grace of our Savior? Like, how will you actually be pro-life? And beyond pro-life, when it comes to racial tensions or poverty or LGBTQ issues, at least ask yourself, like, how will I actually love? Not how will I hold to a theory? Not how will I have a conviction in, in isolation? But how will you serve? How will you point people to Christ? I mean, if you're someone who loves to engage in political and cultural discussions, great. But just remember the end of it all. Like that you want to figure out how you're going to truly and practically love better. Lastly, a love that seeks others' highest good, even at the cost of self, is marked by an evangelistic heart. This was a big focus in 1 Peter, but if you remember, the Bible assumes that as Christians, we will be persecuted. Right? But what is more important than getting away from the persecution is that we engage our culture in such a way that we are going to witness for Jesus. So more than being worried about personal freedoms, <clears throat> we need to be concerned about people's souls meaning that if we're going to love well, it, we can't see it as us versus the culture or us against the culture. It's us being a light to the culture. It's us sharing Jesus with the culture. It's us willing to suffer to make Christ known to the culture. We need to have a heart for, for, the, for, for, for the lost. I could talk for longer, but where does this leave us? We, we must be a cruciform church. We must be shaped by the message of the cross that we can show the love of the cross. And if we do that, Lighthouse, we have great potential to do incredible things for Christ this year. I know for me, kind of leading up this year, I, again, I was like, I don't, I'm not really looking forward to 2024. We, we, I took a little bit of a beating in the last election. And, but just to, to come together, and it's like, this could be exciting for us. Like, we can really 
do things to make Christ known. And what a privilege that is that we get as Christians. Let me close with this. If, if you remember, if you're, if you're going to do this, if we're going to do this, it's going to take faith. Remember Galatians 2.20 that I read earlier. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The only way to navigate the culture with conviction and courage, but also with humility, hope, and love is by faith in Christ and his gospel. But here's the thing. <clears throat> Believe that if you do this, like if, you, if, you, if you're shaped by the gospel, if you live by faith in that gospel, you, your heart's gonna rest. The world is not at rest. Why? Because all that's happening seems so threatening. For example, the world is worried about their values being threatened, their way of life being threatened, their version of personhood being threatened. And even as Christians, we can be fearful and upset because we feel threatened. Maybe Christian freedoms, maybe Judeo-Christian ethics, maybe our children. And then it makes sense that we're worried and why we're fearful. The thing that we have to realize is that Christ is never threatened. I never. And, and, and the church is never truly threatened either, right? The church will triumph. The gates of hell itself shall not prevail. So the reason we get worried and afraid and angry is because our idols are threatened. <clears throat> the things that we value that aren't really ultimately about Christ. But the gospel reminds us that while our idols fail us, Christ is always worthy of our worship and we can trust him completely. I mean, we live by faith that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So Lighthouse as we go into this year, what do we need to fear? Like, what could actually prevail against us? What is going on that's beyond our control? I mean, do you really think something like the coming election has slipped through God's fingers? And so it's up to us to make sure things are right. We have nothing to fear because the gospel proclaims the love and faithfulness of our Savior. And so let's be a cruciform church. Let's be a church shaped by the message of the cross that we might show the love of the cross. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to be shaped by the message of the cross. And from that, Lord, help us to show the love of the cross. Lord, we live in a world, we live in a country, we live in a city where there's so many people desperately in need of a savior. And so, Lord, just may our hearts break for that. And may we wanna live in a way that has such conviction and courage and yet such humility, hope, and love. And through it all, may we make you known. We thank you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.